0: So, uh, a little while back, I came across this article that was written by a man named David Brooks uh, in the New York Times. He had, re- he had, uh, David Brooks he wrote this article based off of a podcast that he had watched or listened to um, on NPR. And it was this really fascinating story. I thought it was fascinating. And so did he. He said, actually, as he listened to this podcast, it stuck with him for so long, it just haunted him. It's the story of this uh, young woman. She was a, a punk. She's the lead singer of a punk rock band. Uh, she was a punk. She was the lead singer of a punk rock band. And um, one of her best friends, is a man who was her best friend in the band with her, um, they're on their way to a gig. And on their way, the venue called ahead of time and said that they they had, were canceling the show. And the reason they gave was because there was someone who had an allegation against this man in her band, the, her best friend, that said that he had sent an unwanted and explicit, inappropriate picture of himself to... uh to to someone, and so he denied it, and, and the other the men in the band were like, whatever, we don't we don't think this is true, but but she took it really seriously, and she, and she uh, got back home. She was like seething, and she wrote this long Facebook post, basically denouncing this guy. And uh, as David Brooks writes in his in his article, he said the post worked. Um, He ended up leaving the band and disappeared from the punk scene. He goes on to say that this woman, uh, his friend, heard rumors that he'd been fired from his job, he'd been kicked out of his apartment, they had to move to a new city, and that he was not doing well. And she's never spoken to him ever since. Um, A couple years after that, I think it was like 2016, something similar happened to her, where Another human being found out, another person found out about uh, when this young woman was in high school, there was an inappropriate photo of a another high schooler, one of her classmates that was leaked and that people could see. And she had uh, basically made fun of this girl in this photo over a decade before this. And there was another post den- denouncing her. Someone had written this thing and it went viral and as David Brooks says, she too is the object of nationwide group hate. She was banned from the punk scene, that she didn't leave the house for what felt like months. Her friends dropped her. She was scared, traumatized, and alone, and she tried to vanish. She said, she said this in David Brooks' article. She said, it's entirely my life. Like, this is everything to me, and it's just all done. It's over. She even said she doesn't know what to think of herself anymore. She said, I do feel like a monster. And the story doesn't end there either. <laughs> it goes on for you to say, here's just one man's life is ruined, here's just one woman's life that's ruined. And so the interviewer on the podcast tracked down the guy who wrote the post about her and asked him how he felt about ruining her life. And uh, he said calling her out was like he felt this incredible rush of pleasure in, in, in busting her. Um, the interview asked him if he cared about the pain that he caused this young woman. And he, he, here's what he said. He said, no, I don't care. I don't care because it's obviously something you deserve. It's something, it's been coming. And I literally do not care about what happens to her after this situation. I don't care if she's dead, alive, whatever. And just reading that article and hearing about this, the three stories of these three people, I just was wondering um, the question of, um, like how, what do we do when we hear this story? Like, how do we look at the story? Like, sometimes I could look at it and get angry, angry at the first person, maybe like, I can't believe you would send a picture look out of yourself or angry at the people who like dogpiled him or angry at her who de- dropped him or angry at this guy who, um, again, he says, I don't care what happened to her. I don't care if she's dead. I don't care if she's alive, whatever. Maybe we feel this sense of satisfaction. Like, yeah, good. They got what they deserved, like instant karma or like delayed karma. Um, but how do we look at this? How do we look at this kind of thing? Because it happens all the time. This is just one story among thousands. How do I look at this? That's what we're doing in this series, right? We're in the two, part two of this five-part series. How do I look? And it's based off by, by looking at St. Paul's letter where he says, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Basically asking the question, are you looking at the world like the rest of the world? Are we looking at the world like Christians? Um, there's a uh, as a famous uh, Christian. His name was Chuck Holson, and uh, Chuck Holson did a lot for prison ministry, did a lot for evangelization throughout throughout the country, throughout the world. At one point, he said he would go to these places and you know places he would give a talk to people who were Christians, even pastors and whatnot, and he would ask them, "What is Christianity?" And yeah, ask them to, to tell him, what, what do you think Christianity is? And people would say, well, it's a religion. Okay, yeah, all the people say it's a relationship. So all those things. He said all, out of all the answers that people ever gave him, no one really summed it up. And he said it's summed up like this. He said Christianity can be summed up in one word. Christianity is a worldview. That the Christianity isn't just we look at the world like the rest of the world and we just believe a few extra things. But Christianity doesn't just change the way we see some things Christianity worldview changes the way we look at everything. And how important this is because we realize that vision determines destination. That if I look at the world like the world, I end up like the world. But if I look at the world like Jesus, then I end up like Christ. Vision determines destination. And so how do I look? How do I look at stuff like this? How do I look at when someone's done something wrong? That's the big question. How does a Christian fight? When someone does something wrong, how does a Christian fight? When someone fails, how does a Christian fight? Or another way to say this, and i say it again. When someone does something wrong, how do I look at them? How do I look? I think our natural inclinations are um, like we look away. Or we dismiss. Say, just, I'm not going to think about this. Or we disqualify and say they're done. Or we dogpile and get as many people on top of them as we can. Or, or um, we just drive by, give our drive-by comments. Drive-by criticisms. And again, every one of those natural inclinations involves a temptation to look at the person as a non-person. Every one of them. Every one of the, those, those, those natural inclinations is a temptation to look at the other as a non-person. Even, even looking away, it's so interesting. I, I You might know the story in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There's this occasion where here's St. Paul. He's writing to the Corinthians. There are all these People in Corinth who have been converted to Christianity. Now, if you know anything about Corinth at the time, Corinth was was the had a reputation. If you were someone who um, was uh, given over to licentiousness, given over to debauchery, given over to whatever, they would call you a Corinthian. It's, it's kind of like, like if you're like going to Las Vegas, like, oh wow, going to Las Vegas, kind of a place of scandal, the Sin City, they call it. Um, that was Corinth. But all these people had become christians and so he's like okay they're in now they're, they're part of the family they're, they belong to christ and now they look at the world look at each other like jesus but there's a story that paul recounts in first corinthians chapter 5 he says okay here's what i've heard um that there is a person among you uh one of your brothers a christian in your community in your parish this small parish in the middle of this big city corinth and he is living with his father's wife. And then he says, that, he says something, people, people in Corinth don't even do that normally. Like, that's scandalous even for Corinthians. Here you are, Christians, and here's this guy, and he's living, he's having a romantic relationship with his dad's wife. And when he says to them, he says, and you don't do anything about it basically, it's kind of like one of those things where, like, you know, it's one of those open secrets. Like, we're just not going to bring it up. Yeah, we come together on Sunday. We maybe have prayer meetings and stuff, and we're living, doing our lives, and we're maybe having a Bible study or so whatever they're doing. But kind of like, yeah, we don't really say anything about this. It's just this toxic thing that exists in our, you know. And maybe someone's like, oh, yeah, I know that. That's just Dave, though. You know, he's just, I mean, he's a really good guy otherwise. And so we just don't bring up these big, difficult, awful things. Um, We just pretend that it doesn't exist. Why? Because I don't like looking at it. I don't want to say anything about it. Why? Because it's not my responsibility. St. Paul basically is saying in 1 Corinthians 5, Dave, I just gave him his name. His name is not Dave. Maybe it was, I don't know. Dave is your responsibility. You need to do something about this because even looking away makes Dave a non-person. To not do anything about it, to not say anything about this, is treating him as less than. To say I'm not responsible for him strips him of his personhood. You know, because I, we would say this in Scripture, based on Scripture, there are two sources of responsibility that we have. The two sources of responsibility. There's also uh, two motivations. And there's also two methods. But there's one goal. On the first reading, it's from the prophet uh, Ezekiel. And we heard it. It was. It's that... God says to Ezekiel, I've set you as a watchman. Like, I've given you a job. Your job is a prophet. So here's Ezekiel's job. It's a prophet. So basically, since you have this role in the world to call out evil when you see it, that means you have a responsibility. Your role equals the responsibility. So not a lot of us have the role of a prophet in the same way that Ezekiel had it. No, we are anointed prophets because we're baptized, But a lot of us don't have the exact same kind of responsibility that Ezekiel did as that kind of prophet. Now, our pastors do, our bishops do, those people who are put in authority over us, they have a particular role, therefore they have a particular responsibility to call out sin when they see it. In fact, how Ezekiel, not just the source of his responsibility, is his role, but also then um, his method of responsibility is different. That he, he has to publicly call out sin. That what Ezekiel has to do, because his role gives him this responsibility, he has to publicly call out, no, he has to publicly call out public sin. That's a very important point. Why? Because his motivation is justice. Because he's, even the Lord God even says to Ezekiel, if these people are doing these evil things and you don't say something, you're not just not caring about them, you're not even being just, because other people will see what they're doing and think that that's fine. And so you, Ezekiel, you have a role, therefore you have a responsibility in justice to be public about this. And in fact, we see this in Galatians chapter two. I mean, it's kind of embarrassing story about our, our, our early church, but what was happening? Well, in Galatians chapter two, St. Paul recounts the time when he had to correct St. Peter. Um, what was happening? Peter was uh, visiting, he was living with a lot of Gentiles, non-Jewish people, but when Jewish, and he would eat with them, he would dine with them, he would have you know fellowship with them. But when Jews showed up, Peter kind of was like, well, I'm going to stay away from the Gentiles and I would actually now um, live kosher. But when the Jews weren't there, he didn't care about living kosher because Jesus had told him you don't have to, you know, you can eat of all the food that you wouldn't have eaten if you're eating kosher. And St. Paul realized that here's Peter who has this public role, who's giving some ways public scandal. He's misleading people. He wasn't teaching anything inerrant or he wasn't teaching anything wrong, but he was just living in a way that he was called to live differently. And so what did St. Paul say? He says in Galatians chapter 2, he said, I publicly opposed, publicly opposed Peter to his face because Paul had a role. Therefore, he had a responsibility. Peter was giving bad witness in public. Therefore, Paul had to correct him in public for the sake of justice. And in doing this is so remarkable. In doing this, this is not an insult to Peter. To ignore it would be an insult to Peter. To ignore it would be an insult to the people around Peter. But to address this acknowledges the fact that Peter, actually, I'm calling you higher. Peter, I'm fighting for you. So for Ezekiel, his role gave him the responsibility. The kind of sin was public. Therefore, the correction had to be public because of justice. But here's the interesting thing. In the gospel, Jesus gives us an entirely different kind of situation where someone doesn't necessarily have the role that gives them the responsibility, but they have a relationship that gives them the responsibility. That's the second source of responsibility is a relationship. Jesus says, he says, if your brother sins against you, again, that word means (laughs) like brother means brother. Brother means this is someone you have a relationship with. And if your brother sins against you, here's what you do. The source of your responsibility is that relationship. But this is so remarkable. Um, The motive isn't justice, the motive here is love. If your brother sins against you, go to your brother. What are we tempted to do? Remember, sometimes we're tempted to look away. Sometimes we're tempted to, dis- to, to dismiss. Or other times we're tempted to disqualify the person. Like, listen, you crossed me. You're done. You're dead to me. Or we're t- tempted to dogpile on the person. Like, get everyone involved on this thing. Or we're, we're tempted to do this, what I would call like drive-by correction, where you just kind of like take one moment, one beat, and just kind of say, here's all the things you did wrong. I'm leaving. But what does Jesus say? All of those, all of those things, they treat the other as a non-person. And Jesus says, when your brother sins against you, again, your relationship gives you this responsibility. You have to do this. You have to go to your brother in private. The first step is personal and private. The first step is personal and private because it's not there to shame the other person. It's not there to, to wound the other person. It's not there, to, again, to dogpile the other person. It's there because it's personal. You need to fight to see them as a person, and it's private. If that doesn't work, Jesus says, bring one or two other brothers along with you, other people in the family of God with you, so the testimony can be accounted with two or three witnesses. But you think about this, like bring someone else in this. It's not, this; no longer merely personal. It's now personal and it's persistent. Because a lot of times, what do we do? Once we correct someone and they don't take it, we just give up on them. We're like, okay, I'm done. But St. Jesus Jesus is saying, he's like, "No, no, no, don't give up. Bring people back. This is worth fighting for. Think about this. What other relationship do we have in this world where we might bring a third party in to save the relationship? That when the relationship is one, one that where people have been hurt, what's one relationship that's in this world that we might bring a third party in because we're saying like, no, this relationship is worth fighting for. It's worth saving. It's, it's, it's marriage. How often are there husbands and wives who are just like, we are just at odds. We have just hurt each other Too often, we've just grown apart too much, but we're not gonna give up on this. We're gonna bring someone else in because, not so I can win, but because this relationship is worth fighting for. Too often in marriages and friendships and and coworker relationships, The other becomes a non-person because in my mind they're just a monster. And in my mind, they're the person who hurt me. In my mind, they're they're um they're beyond forgiveness. But Jesus is saying, no, if you go to that, it's personal and private. But then if that doesn't work, be personal and persistent. Like, don't give up on this, this relationship. And this is what Jesus is saying about the church, us as Christians coming to each other. Be personal and persistent. If you need to bring someone else in to mediate this, to heal this, it's important. But then he says, you know, and if they don't listen to them, then bring it to the church. And I think this is being personal and patient because it's, I mean, how many times do you keep coming back to someone and saying, okay, this is the wound, this is the hurt, this is the pain that you're causing and I'm not going to uh, make you a non-person. I'm not going to dismiss it. I'm not going to disqualify you. That I'm... Here to love. That's the thing. How how do Christians look? How do we look at the person who hurt us? Well, we look at the person. And how do we fight with the person who hurt us? And this is the key thing. As Christians, we fight for them. I don't know if we ever, ever find ourselves fighting against them. As Christians, we are always fighting to see the person. We're always fighting for the person. That's the goal every time. Jesus says, if he listens to you, you have won over your brother. That's what winning is. How do we fight? We fight for. How do we win? We win if we win them, if we win the person. That's one of the reasons why I think um, those who work in the pro-life world are not just those who fight to stop the evil of abortion, but they're the ones who are fighting for the parents who have even been tempted to have an abortion or have had an abortion. They're fighting for them. They're saying, no, the goal is not to stop you. The goal is not to defeat you. The goal is to win you over. Those who fight for pro-life aren't just the ones who want to fight to stop the evil of abortion. They're also the ones who want to fight, who are fighting for those who work in the abortion industry. But to do that, to, have, to fight like that, to, fight like, to look like a Christian, to fight like a Christian, it takes courage. And, and it takes time. It's not this drive-by correction where I just kind of throw up my criticism or throw up my correction. And I think it takes more love than most of us have. I think looking like this takes more love than most of us have because this kind of fighting hurts. I think sometimes if we offer correction to someone um, and, and fighting for them Hurts them more than it hurts us, then I think we're doing it wrong. If I'm going to offer correction to someone because it's my responsibility, because it's either my role or my relationship, and it hurts them more than it hurts me, then I think I'm doing something wrong. And this is the last thing um, that can be. It can be really tough for a couple reasons. I think. One is because we know we're, we're broken. Jesus even says, he says, before you remove the splinter from your brother's eye, take the beam out of your own eye. Um, and you, and you, we wonder, like, when can I say something? When should I not say something? But how could I, How do I say something when I know how broken I am? I think what Thomas Aquinas said, St. Thomas Aquinas, he said this. Um, he said, maybe you've discovered or maybe you've, it's been presented to you that this Brother or sister of yours has has this wound, has this sin, has this brokenness. Um, But you also realize that you are guilty of the same thing. How could you possibly correct them? He says this. He says, but if we find we are guilty of the same sin, we must not rebuke our brother. We must not rebuke our sister. But instead, we must groan with them and invite them to repent with us. If we realize that I'm broken in the same way they're broken. That often happens, right? We see the wounds in others that we recognize we have in ourselves. we find we're guilty of the same sin, we find we're broken in the same way, we must not rebuke them, but must groan with them and invite them to repent with us. I think that as difficult as this call of Jesus is, to realize that either our role or our relationship gives us this responsibility. Um, it's important to note where Jesus ends here. Because where he, where, where he ends is, it doesn't work. Where he ends is, 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 yeah, you were there, you went there, and you fought, fought to see the person, you fought for the person. And even after all of that, even after going to them personal and in private and personal and patient, personal, persistent, in the end, it doesn't work. After all that, it fails. I think we just realize that's the risk. That you could lose. You could lose a brother. You could lose a sister. You could lose a friend. But sometimes that's the greatest gift you can give to somebody. Years ago, I remember, um, I said last thing, but it's, you know, longer last thing. I remember a priest who was assigned to this parish that was just, um, had a lot of brokenness in it, and uh, they weren't living as Catholics when it came to worshiping God. They weren't living as Catholics when it came to uh, their own private lives. And this priest is such a big heart and such a, a kind man courageous man, took time. He kept going to these people's houses um, who were living in irregular relationships and saying that's completely fine. And um, he kept going back to their homes, going back to the homes, just like, I'm calling you, come back to church, come back to the uh, the parish. And um, at one point, the bishop of my friend said, Father, um, at some point, you need to just point out to them where they're standing. That they're standing outside. That they're standing outside the church. And You didn't put them there. You just pointed it out that that's what they're, where they were. And that's what Jesus is saying today. That even after all that, they're not listening to you, then you treat them as a Gentile or tax collector. What's that mean? That means not someone you hate because Jesus loved Gentiles. He loved tax collectors. The Gentiles and tax collectors were people who were standing outside. And sometimes... One of the ways we fight for people is by pointing out where they're standing. So how do I look? Always, even in the midst of evil, I look at the person. And how do I fight as Christians? Always, even when there's evil that needs to be stopped, our fight is always for the person. The fight is always to see the person. The fight is always not to win the argument, but is always to win the person.